0: And welcome back to another episode of The Conspiracy Skeptic. I'm your conspiracy skeptic, Carl Mamer, and we have a returning guest today, uh, Stuart Stuart Robbins. Stuart? Hello. Hi, Stuart. I am. Can you hear me? <laughs> yeah, I can hear you. Great. Okay. And uh, Stuart, is, you are our resident uh, astronomy expert, I guess.
1: If you want to call it that you're stretching the, the definition of expert, but sure.
0: Well I could I can name uh I can name two stars. How many can you name?
1: Uh more than that.
0: Okay, you're the you're you're cons- the conspiracy skeptics resident astronomy expert. And you uh you've been in two episodes so far. Uh a uh sort of an official unplugged episode about the twenty twelve, right? Yes. Yeah, and uh, that, that's, a, that's a, a very popular show. Uh, I got a lot of hits from that. And uh, let's see. And then you were on uh, just to talk about sort of the uh, the moon uh, moon conspiracy, the moon hoax conspiracy.
1: Yeah, for uh, over the summer for the 40th anniversary of the Apollo landings.
0: Right. Yes. Yeah. So you haven't changed your mind about either. You still think we're okay for 2012, and you still think man actually walked on the moon.
1: Do. Although, uh, for all those people out there who believe the world will end in 2013, then uh, feel free to send me all of your stuff uh, uh, December 20th, 2012. I will, uh, again, you know, I'll use it for a day and then y'all can die and uh, I'll have it for the rest of the time.
0: <laughs> all right. And uh, so, how, how uh, have people, has that sort of quieted down a bit, the, uh, the 2012? panic or uh, are are you still getting as many or more hits on your your blog you uh, i guess we should explain you do a blog called uh uh what what is it called pseudo-
1: exposing pseudo astronomy yeah, exposing pseudo and i still get a lot of hits uh i still get anywhere from 150 to 250 hits a day from just the planet x in 2012 stuff
0: really okay
1: and uh yeah I mean, people debating them on various forums or just random hits from search engines, I mean, I think it's actually sort of humorous that I get hits from Christian forums debating 2012 uh, and linking to my blog because, among other things, I do discuss uh, bad young Earth creationist arguments on my blog that relate to astronomy. So I I find it sort of humorous that Christian forums are linking to my blog about 2012, but well, uh, well, maybe they'll be educated a little
0: <laughs> So, uh, no, are they linking to your blog to sort of uh, uh, sort of combat the hysteria? Sort of like, no, no, we're not doomed in 2012, look, this astronomy guy says so Right. Okay.
1: Yeah, it's not uh, look, this guy, he's insane he's totally drunk the Kool-Aid, he's being bought off by NASA. It's very much a, look, this guy uh, he has a good reference, here it is here's a quote from it, and this is why you're wrong
0: wow so, so the the cognitive dissonance that that you that the the, the science you use to quell people 's fears about two thousand and twelve is the exact same science that tells you you know the universe is thirteen and a half billion years old or you know many stars are millions of years or millions of light years away they 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 just neatly separate those two.
1: Yeah, and uh, that's actually something that I do in my Moon Hoax presentation, is that I point out that if this stuff is wrong, if, you know, the basic optics that I'm explaining about photography as to, for example, why there are no stars in the Apollo photographs, uh, is wrong, then everything else that that relates to, that that science pertains to, is also wrong. And, you know, it's not like you can pick and... Choose what physics applies when and where. You really have to use the same stuff everywhere. That's the whole point of physics and figuring out how things work.
0: The people can use a computer and uh, can argue that you know the world is only six thousand years old. I, I don't think they sort of realize that the kind of the, the science that sort of leads that, that led us to create a computer. You know, uh, uh, you know. Quantum physics, Maxwell's equations, all that sort of stuff is, is the exact same physics that has led us to, you know, an understanding of that. You know, the universe is a very old place. That you know, um, uh, you know, uh, radioactive decay, think things like that that you know let us, you know, determine that the Earth is you know about four billion years old. It, they 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 have such a poor grasp of that. Right. Wow. Well, I mean, ha- have you considered on your blog, sort of? kind of walk, trying to walk them to that, you know, thank you for coming to my blog. Uh, You know, if you accept this science, you know, that, that the world's not going to end in 2012, then, then this is how it exactly relates to, you know, uh, a 14 or 13.5 billion year old universe.
1: Uh, I don't think it's quite direct enough to keep people's attention.
0: Okay. All right. (laughs)
1: Like, I mean, for, for example, with the, uh, the Apollo hoax stuff with the stars and photographs. I mean, that is something that people can very easily just go outside, take their camera, and try to take a picture of the moon. And if you try to take a picture of the moon and actually get stars in the photo, then you're going to overexpose the moon. And if you take a picture of the moon and properly expose the moon, you're not going to get any stars. And that's something that very directly people can just do themselves to show, you know, how... That applies on the moon just as it applies on the earth. When you're taking a picture, you have to expose properly for whatever you're trying to capture. Um, But trying to link uh, the the nothing that will happen in 2012 with using a cell phone is a little harder to do.
0: Okay, okay, (laughs) all right. And uh, so since we since we've talked to you, I I believe uh, I talked to you about the uh, the moon hoax conspiracy, the LRO, the Lunar Reconnaissance. Reconnaissance orbiter had sort of yet to start taking pictures, and we were sort of discussing about, uh, you know, the the how we'll probably get good images of the the various uh, uh, Apollo mission landing sites. And uh, so, since then, we have had photographs out of the LRO, uh, but that's of course had so has that um, made the moon hoax people go, you know what? I was wrong.
1: Of course not. <laughs> it's made people who really don't have any investment in it say, "Oh, I guess I'm wrong." But you know, the, pe- the die-hard pe- people—they're um, never going to be convinced. Now, um, since we last spoke, though, um, I did find out that one of the four main people who had uh, propagated the moon hoax conspiracy had actually died. Right. Um, I said that. Um, Ralph Rene and Bart Sibrel were the only two of the four that were still alive, but, uh, that was actually incorrect. Ralph Rene, uh, died apparently by committing suicide at the end of 2008. Oh, dear. So, it's really only Bart Cybrel who's left. And, you know, it's it's bad to speak ill of the dead and all that stuff, so, you know, I'm not going to go on about anything like that. But, yeah, Bart Sibrel is still out there. Uh, he's still making his movies. He's still driving his cab, um and still saying that, that we never landed on the moon. And, you know, it, the, the response to those LRO photographs, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter photographs of the Apollo landing sites from the conspiracy community has been just what was expected. You know, these are just photoshopped, or these are just made up in a NASA lab, or this, that, and the other thing. Right. You know, there really never... There's never going to be enough evidence, proofs who someone um, who... Or to show someone who is really invested in the conspiracy that they are wrong,
0: right? Yeah, and uh, I was it, who, who's that guy Sabrell? What was mm-hmm. it? Yeah, I, I, I seem to recall uh, whatever that name is mentioned to Phil Plate. Phil kind of uh, scrunches up his face and and sort of is like he's kind of not the my favorite person in the universe. He, he's he's a bit of a. Uh, he, he's not the, the the most kind debater or something, you, I get the feeling. No,
1: no, he's the one who basically went up to you know, all of these former astronauts and tried to get them to swear on the Bible that they actually went to the moon and was famously punched by, I want to say, Buzz Aldrin, but I get him and Neil Armstrong mixed up. Uh, so I think Buzz Aldrin yeah, yeah, uh, was Buzz. punched him.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, you know, a, a little bit off topic, but you know, how was were saying, speaking ill of the dead. Um, you know, I always remember when uh, Carl Carl Sagan died. Uh, the uh, I mean, a lot of the you know the UFO nuts and you know the psychic nuts and stuff like that. I used to sort of debate with when Carl Sagan and Carl Sagan was, of course, you know, a really Big, uh, you know, skeptic and opponent of many of their beliefs. But even when Carl Sagan died, you know, I, I did not see one of the, uh, you know, the Woosters say anything ill about Carl Sagan. They were all they, you know, they, they mourned his passing as much as the skeptics. And 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 I've always sort of remembered that and thought to myself, you know, he, he, like even when these, you know, woo people die off, that that the, at least the people I talk to didn't, you know, didn't sort of jump for joy at Carl Sagan's death. and So so I, I never really wanted to sort of, you know, jump up and down. Who was that guy that died the other day, the, the, the preacher that gave me a million dollars, oh, God will call me home? Uh, uh,
1: I didn't hear about that
0: one. Oh, okay, yeah, that, that sort of famous preacher guy. You know, you know, again, a guy that's, you know, robbed, you know how many millions from, you know, granny's purses. But, uh, you know, even when he died, I mean, a lot of people were sort of jumping up and down, going, yeah, this, you know, idiot's dead. But I didn't feel comfortable with that, just because I remember, you know, like I say, that the, you know, the other side, they they, they mourned Carl's passing as much as, as we did. So, I don't know. That's neither here nor there. So, uh, but... Uh, I guess I sort of brought you on because uh there are two things that uh are supposedly going to wipe us out, aren't are there? Two things kind of came up in the news maybe in the last couple weeks almost within.
1: Yeah, I was going to say you'll have to be a little more specific about what's going to wipe us out.
0: Oh yeah, well, <laughs> let me tell you. Uh yeah, it's not a not a not a vampire virus. I went to I went to go see that movie uh uh Daybreakers. Yeah. Uh, you know I was going to ask you, did you see the movie 2012? Uh no. No. Okay. <laughs> so I, I went yes. to I went to see it and uh it was it it was surprisingly bad, but it was also surprising in that it, it dealt very, 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 very little with the whole twenty twelve crap. It was sort of like you That's know That's what I heard. Yeah. So I I I was at least pleased by that so I I just thought maybe you know because that movie eh, movie didn't really do anything and it didn't really pump up the 2012 stuff so I just wondered if that maybe kind of you know sort of killed off a lot of the buzz or something but I I, I guess
1: not that I'm aware of I mean you know I um, I don't know if your listeners uh, all three are 3,000 or 30,000 of them know this, but I listen to a lot of Coast to Coast AM episodes. Um, Coast to Coast AM, for those who don't know, is a four-hour, every-night radio show. Um, Although without commercials, it's closer to two hours and 40 minutes. And it's basically this paranormal show where the host um, brings on everyone from alleged psychics to ghost hunters to trends watchers to... uh, people who believe in 2012, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, even the people on that show were like, yeah, the movie 2012, not very good. Um, you know, if you liked action, it was good, but that's not what's going to happen in 2012. Now here's what I say in my book is going to happen. Right. So they've sort of just brushed off the movie as, you know, another Hollywood, let's blow up the earth or destroy the earth or kill the White House, et cetera, um, and moved on, really.
0: Okay, so the two, two things that are going to kill us now is, uh, I guess it was last week, they talked a little bit about this on, on SGU. A, uh, there's an asteroid, a Apophis or something?
1: Apophis, a- 99942 Apophis, spelled A-P-O-P-H-I-S.
0: Okay, so uh, Apophis, it's an asteroid, it's, uh, uh, they call it Earthcrosser?
1: Uh, yeah, there are more technical names, but EarthCrosser works. Okay, cool. All right.
0: Do they just have a, like a number for EarthCrossers? It's a QX318. Oh, my God!
1: Uh, no, all asteroids are numbered, or minor bodies are numbered, based on uh, the order in which they were uh, uh, discovered. Okay. And um, Apophis was the 99,942nd one that was discovered and confirmed. Okay. So that's how it got its number.
0: Okay. So it's one of those, as the lay yeah. person would say, one of them Earth crossers. And, uh, and I guess a while ago, it was probably maybe a couple of years ago, uh, someone said... Okay. Well, more than a couple of years ago, someone kind of did a, uh, I mean, as best a calculation as they could and, and, and thought, well, you know, this one, this one might be close. I, th- I think they calculated about like a one in, 1 in 32 chance of hitting Earth or something like that. Does that, does that sound right?
1: The lowest number that I found, or the highest probability that I found, was a one in forty-two chance that it would cross, or that it would hit. Sorry, not.
0: Okay, Alright. You know, did you ever play Dungeons and Dungeons and Dragons? Uh,
1: Admittedly, I played it uh, in the mid '90s for about not very long, about a year or so.
0: Okay. Well I mean to look at me it's obvious I played a lot of Dungeons and Dragons, but you know, one of the things great about Dungeons and Dragons is if someone says like oh, it's a one in a hundred, you know, you you, you have an intuitive sense of you know, I gotta jeez, I gotta roll a one on, you know, on a D one
1: hundred, yeah. Yeah, on
0: a D one hundred. Well they didn't have a D one hundred, but you know yeah, you're you're 20. I have
1: a D one hundred. Really? Yeah, yeah, uh, it's special order at the game store. Oh but my anyway. goodness! <laughs> and
0: uh, so, uh, you know, so you know, see, you have a bit, very intuitive sense of like,
1: yeah, you know,
0: that's not that's not going to come up. You know, I mean, it might, but I don't think today. You know, I don't think this is going to save my, you know, my half elf. I don't think so. But uh, but I mean, you know, one in one in one in forty two eh, still, but. I mean, from
1: an compared astronomy- with most things in astronomy, that okay. is incredibly high chance.
0: Okay, so as an astronomer, a one in forty-two. I mean, does that make you like jump under your bed or something? Is-
1: no, because my bed sits on the floor. But um, it got a lot of people very worried, and of course, it spawned many conspiracy theories and doomsday scenarios. But uh, I mean. Those were very, very early uh, predictions, and this was actually the only part of this episode that I prepared for. Um, I I thought of an example. Um, So let's say that you're sitting at a bus stop or say you're sitting outside or standing outside and you see a hot air balloon above you. And you happen to know exactly how high above you it is because otherwise this doesn't quite work. So you happen to know exactly how high above you it is, and you want to estimate where is that hot air balloon going to be in 10 minutes. But you've only observed the balloon for about one second. Now, you can extrapolate from that one second their direction and where they may be in 10 minutes, but it's not likely to be very accurate if your accuracy is, like, for example, at the one meter level and you've watched them for one second, and they've only moved 10 meters, then your uncertainty is 10%. Yeah. And you might be able to say, oh yeah, it's going to be uh, over there, it's going to look like it's going to be above that tree, but you know, it may also be above that tree, because you really don't know. But there's a 1 in 50 chance that it will be above that tree instead of the other tree. So now let's say you wait another two minutes, and you look at it again. Now you have observations that are two minutes apart, and you've observed them to move, you've observed the hot air balloon to move, 110 meters. Now that's within your formal uncertainty before, of 10%, or, you know, the one meter per second out of 10 meters. But that's not what you would get if you multiplied 10 meters by 120 seconds, or two minutes. So, as the time goes on, you want to get more and more observations, and you can refine exactly how well you know it's velocity and its position and where it's actually going to be when you need to know where it's going to be. And so that's what it's like with asteroids and other stuff. With asteroid Apophis, when it was originally um, you know, put out, there was an original press release, it really was only based on a handful of observations. Um, I couldn't exactly find the number of observations, but it was probably maybe a dozen, if that. And um, now we have several hundred observations, probably over a thousand observations. Uh, The last number I actually found was there were 182 observations spanning almost a year, and that was in 2005. So since we're recording this at the beginning of 2010 or 2010, um, I would guess that there are thousands of observations. And we know its orbit much better now, and the odds of it actually hitting Earth have been refined down to a probability of about 1 in 250,000. Okay. So it's highly unlikely now.
0: All right. So but what what it would take to get a critical hit on Orcus?
1: A critical hit on Orcus?
0: Yeah, I think so. That's about what it would take to get a critical hit on Orcus. Oh. I mean, bring it back to my little D and D analogy. I mean, your—I
1: mean, your—I'm sorry.
0: Yeah, your explanation was totally awesome, but you know, for for the even dumber people out there, bring
1: it back to the nerds.
0: Yeah, exactly. for the dumb nerds, that you got to bring it back to D and D. So you got to put an orcus's chance now, right? Okay.
1: Yeah, we'll. we'll, I'll trust you on that.
0: Okay. All right. So so so. Hundred one in two hundred fifty thousand. I mean, that's that's uh, th- that doesn't have you, j- you know, jumping under your bed if you're assuming your bed was like uh, on top of a Actually steel based. bunker. Okay, all right. So that doesn't have you as worried no. as one one in forty two. And then
1: that's pretty much more of a, oh, that's going to be pretty close, and that's going to be cool to watch and try to photograph. But uh, that's gonna that's not a oh, this is going to hit us. Okay. I mean, the 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 real issue was that there was going to be or is going to be, a close approach of this, a a very close approach of this asteroid on April 13th, 2029, when it will pass uh, between Earth and most of our satellites. Uh, It'll be really close. Okay. And the thing is, is that if it were to pass in just the right location, then Earth's gravity would change its orbit in just the right way so that when it comes back, in 2036, it'll hit us.
0: Is that that called the keyhole?
1: I don't know if that's the formal name, but that's what everyone has been using. So for all intents and purposes, yeah, if it hits this keyhole just right, but now the probability of that happening has been greatly reduced now that we know its orbit better. And the other thing is that um, this asteroid is fairly small. Uh, The best estimates right now show that it's um, about a quarter of a kilometer across. So I mean, that's small in terms of asteroids. Um, it's not small in terms of what we deal with on every day. Okay. Um, and its mass has also uh, been revised. Okay. And the thing is is that over time, various effects other than just the gravity of the planets can affect its orbit. Like sunlight can affect its orbit. And so we really have to know its shape, how it rotates, um, its exact dimensions and its mass to really calculate even more precisely how its orbit is going to behave over the longer term. And that's also has been refined over the last few years, and that's why the uh, probability of hit has gone down.
0: Wow. So uh, th- uh, even sunlight, that that could affect its... How does
1: sun... Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's called the... I, I want to say it's pronounced the Yarkovsky effect, uh, something like that. Okay. Um, and obviously named for the guy who thought of it, Yarkovsky, um, which I'm guessing is Russian. Yeah, Russian civil engineer, Yarkovsky. Uh, basically, the um, a photon or a bit of light will impart momentum when ah. it's absorbed, and that momentum will you know, can push it.
0: Okay, so, so like a, so- I, a solar sail concept. Yeah,
1: exactly, I and mean, that's the principle behind a solar sail. Okay. Yarkovsky effect.
0: All right, so... Um, so this thing you said was a, qu- a quarter kilometer. I guess for our, you know, our American listeners, what a quarter kilometer is uh, in 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 feet? Uh,
1: something smaller than a quarter of a mile. Uh, a quarter of a kilometer would probably be somewhere around uh, a sixth of a mile.
0: Yeah, I think a sixth mile. And in in long swords, about how many long swords for our D and D? I have no idea. All right, okay. Well, how
1: long? is a long sword. I
0: don't know. <laughs> Just to keep that keep that joke going, you know. <laughs> but uh, all right, so now, um, so, so astronomers are not particularly worried, but but then uh, popping up in the news, it just almost mysteriously, the, uh, the 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 Russians, the Russian space agency, started sort of yammering about you know that, oh, this might hit Earth, and we wanted to send a mission. Like what what's what's going on there?
1: It's really difficult to say, and all I have to go off are the news stories. Um, It was Anatoly Perminov, and I apologize for butchering all these Russian names. Um, He is the chief of Russia's space agency. And uh, he said just at the end of last year, uh, I guess Wednesday, December 30th, He said that they were considering holding a conference, uh, an internal conference, to create a space mission to try to go to Apophis and alter its orbit so that it doesn't hit Earth. And um, what kind of disturbs me is that this guy hasn't really figured out what Apophis is, it seems. Because the quote that I saw was, um, I don't remember exactly, but it seems to me it could hit Earth by 2032.
0: And, and, it was 20, and 2029 was its closest approach.
1: 2029 is when it's going to go through or near that keyhole, and 2036 is when that supposed hit would happen.
0: So he's just kind of taking an average.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, if you're going to talk to the media, and if you're the head or chief of a space agency, it seems like you should get your numbers right. So I'm, I'm, I don't know, maybe he was misquoted or something. Right but it seems like this isn't the most thought-of or thought-out plan, and most astronomers, at least in the U.S., are just kind of looking at it like, huh? It looks like, you know, we really don't know quite what's going on here. Um, It could just be, and this would actually be a very good reason to be bringing this up, it could just be that it's more that Apophis is an example, uh, sort of a, a symbol of, oh, You know, Earth really is kind of in danger of being hit by something. This will happen at some point, and we should have some sort of plan in place for dealing with it. And, you know, if that was his purpose in doing this, then, you know, you sort of use some fear-mongering tactics, but, you know, getting the international scientific community together to really figure out how to deal with uh, such an event, other than sending up Bruce Willis with a nuke, is... A good thing to do. It's good to you know know what our options are. It's good to know where these asteroids are, and it's good to know what to do if you know when, not if, when we do discover that one that will hit us and will cause damage.
0: Right. I mean, uh, they have in the past, right? So they will in the yeah. future.
1: Goodbye, dinosaurs.
0: Yes. For example. <laughs> yeah.
1: Most famous example.
0: Right, so um, I mean, you know, anybody sort of in the skeptical business eventually learns that you know that the that the sort of the, the popular media they don't always get the story right, especially in, when it comes to sort of science reporting. Right? Is 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 that maybe a possible explanation that you know? Because I mean, they're probably um, they're probably he probably did it in Russian, and somebody's translating it into English, and then somebody...
1: Yeah, that's why I say he may have just sort of been misquoted. Right. Um, Hopefully. Right. (laughs) Um, I I can't read Russian, so I can't go to the original source.
0: Okay. Yeah. But but have you found anything in the, uh, sort of in... in in the uh you know the, the astronomy literature or is this just all kind of stuff that's been in the popular popular press about this this little rush supposed russian plan
1: uh, uh yeah all i've seen is just the uh, flurry of news reports in pretty much every major out- news outlet when this guy uh, said what he said right. whatever it actually was
0: okay so uh so uh, it, it's probably nothing to really worry about uh, that you know that the Russians really think we're going to be hit. It's just him probably thinking, him sort of saying, you know, we, we should be worried about this, you know, in, in sort of a hypothetical sense. Uh, but, right. know, and for example, you know, here's something we know that's going to pass close by Earth. And uh, and so, um, but I mean, uh, I'm just thinking, you know, after you know, after we all live through 2012, uh, what, what odds do you think that the uh, Apophis is going to be the next big Conspiracy, end of the world.
1: It really depends on if they jump on the 2016 keyhole passing date. Okay. Um, and if if they do, if they say you know that's when it's going to hit, as opposed to that's or not 2016, uh, twenty uh, something or other. What did I say earlier? Twenty twenty three or twenty nine? Yeah, twenty twenty nine. Okay. Um, you know they may jump on that, but usually, um. Doomsdayers, apocalypse, etc. People like to do something that's a little closer because uh, after 2012 it's going to be what 18 years or can I do math Eight nine seventeen seventeen years okay. um, until 2029 And so I would guess that they'll come up with something that's um, a little closer. It'll probably be astronomy related just because uh, you know everyone looks up at the night sky at some point.
0: Okay, so that's we don't got to worry about that. And, and then, a few days later, there was something about a uh, a star that could. Uh, I, I, can you use supernova as a verb? Could go supernova. I go, you go.
1: Um, probably. Okay. No, why not? All right. So their language evolves. <laughs> sure. Okay. There was
0: a. a I be one time an English teacher. Um, so there could be uh, there. Could be a star, fair, fairly close. <laughs> um, could I get there by car in a day? I don't think so. Uh, no. But yeah, but so I mean, in 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 uh, you know, in Star Trek time, it's fair. It's fairly close. It's about how how, how far is a star that could go super? Well, nope? so
1: that's the big question: is how far away is this star? Okay. Um, the issue and um, what was reported in the media is. Um, One uh, group of people from Vallanova University, uh, as well as one contributor from Eastern University, and I don't know where those are um, or even what country they're in. Um, They gave a – I believe it was a poster presentation, although it could have been an actual uh, 15-minute formal talk at the uh, January meeting of the American Astronomical Society that is or just was held in Washington, D.C., and what they reported on was that they used a new type of model in order to try to figure out how far away this particular star is, and this star is called T. That's one word, just the letter T. Okay. And then P Y X I D D is in dog I S. Um, so maybe T Pyxis? Sure. Perhaps. Sure. Let's go with that. Um, or for short, T-PICS, because in astronomy we abbreviate constellations by just the first three letters. Okay,
0: that, yeah, that makes so, it easy.
1: Yeah, so T-PICS. So what they did was they used a different, uh, new model or re- a refined model to try to figure out how far away T-PICS is. And what they came up with was that this star is only about one kiloparsec away. And uh, I don't think... Americans or Canadians are going to know really what a kiloparsec is, okay. uh, because that's not a standard unit. So astronomers, one way that we like to uh, sound smart is we create units okay. uh, that nobody else uses. So you know, physicists will use nanometers, we use angstroms for measuring light. Uh, physicists will use kilometers and you know multiples of meters, and we use light years and parsecs. So a parsec is about 3.26 uh, light-years. And um, they, a kiloparsec is 1,000 parsecs. So they have measured the star, and they believe that it is about, or they, with their new model, they believe that it is about 1,000 parsecs or about 3,200-something light-years away. Now, what's new about this is that Almost all previous estimates have said that this star is actually three and a half times farther away. That it's about 3.5 kiloparsecs away. And at that distance, if this star goes supernova, then you know nothing really bad on Earth is going to happen. But when you get to about one kiloparsec away, then bad stuff happens okay. to the planets.
0: Okay. And, and so, the, it, now, what I read is it's a Type 1A supernova. Not to be confused, is there a Type 1B supernova? Yes. Is there a Type 2 supernova? Yes. Wow. How many, how many types are there?
1: Um, well, I think my college astronomy teachers are going to be very angry at me, but I think that's about it. I think that there's Type 1A, there's Type 2A. I think that there are Type 1A, Type 1B. I think there's a Type 1C. I know there's Type 2 and I don't remember if there are any others, but I'm sure a very quick search on Wikipedia or Google will tell you that I'm wrong. <laughs> right. now, now, now,
0: so, uh, well, that, I was, was going to say, now my understanding of a supernova, and, and I, I, I guess I was wrong, or maybe it's one kind of supernova. Is it was just, you got this big star, and it's sitting there, and one day it just decides to sort of blow up, like at the end of that movie, uh, Dark Star. Is it is, is is that a supernova?
1: That is a Type 2
0: okay. supernova. Okay, so what's this, what's this Type 1a, then?
1: So a Type 1a is a, a kind of an interesting one. You have two stars that are gravitationally bound. So you have a binary star system. One of those stars has already died. It's a white dwarf. It's what the sun will eventually turn into after it goes nova. Okay. So this star is sitting there, and what it's doing is it's cannibalizing its partner. It is pulling gas and other material from its partner star onto its surface. And as this material collects on its surface, if um, there's enough of it, it will detonate. And what's, uh, you know, just a thermonuclear explosion, basically. And that's when the star will go nova. Not supernova, but it'll just go nova. And uh, this star, T-Pix, has been going nova at least since... 1890. And it's gone Nova on average about once every 19 years.
0: So no, no, Nova, is that just when the star gets big? Like, gets really big? Is that-
1: It'll look really bright,
0: okay. basically. Oh, okay.
1: I mean, no, Nova, I think, is Latin for new. Um, I never took Latin. Maybe my brother will correct me. Um, and basically, it's called that because it, if you see a Nova from Earth, or a supernova, um, it looks like there is a new star in the sky. All right. So the stars will go nova fairly regularly as it pulls matter from its companion star onto its surface and detonates. But what's happening is that it's continuously drawing this material and it's growing bigger. And if the star gets if this white dwarf star gets too big, if it passes what's called the Chandrasekhar limit and I'll give you a link to that. I'm not actually going to try to spell it. <laughs> This is an Indian name now, not Russian name. All right. Uh, If it passes what's known as the Chandrasekhar limit, which is about 1.4 times the mass of our sun, then what will happen is that physically the atoms in it can no longer support the star. It's just too heavy. And it will collapse. And in that collapse, it will go supernova in a type 1A supernova event. And type 1A supernova are actually really important in astronomy because there is a precise physics known for how it happens. You know, it has to be, it has to come from a star that is exactly, you know, 1.4 solar masses, at that exactly the Chandrasekhar limit? And then it explodes. And so it's a, the same brightness no matter where it is in the universe. And so if we can see it and we know how bright it's supposed to be, then we know exactly how far away it is. So, you know, su- uh, type 1a supernova are what's known as uh, standard candle in astronomy, and th- there are various projects, very important projects in astronomy that monitor the sky for supernova, um, these Type One A supernova, to figure out you know just exactly how far away things are. But anyway, right. so
0: it was, it was the, ty- the Type One A that, that that sort of let us figure out right. That sort of let us figure out distances in, in in space, like how far away galaxies are. Using these, these
1: that is one of the methods, and okay. it's one of the... Uh, I, I'm not going to say it's one of the best methods, but it is one of the probably most reliable methods, and it's one of the best methods in terms of uh, determining distance to the very distant universe, because these okay. things are bright.
0: Okay. Right. And there's, like, like parallax. Parallax, well, how, that, but that doesn't let you measure distances super far. Like,
1: right. So that's, you know... T-Pix is kind of sort of at that distance from us where Parallax can't be used.
0: Okay. okay.
1: Parallax is um, fairly simple to explain. In fact, I had to explain it on a plane to a Chinese woman who barely spoke any English. Because <laughs> um, she was asking me what book I was reading. And the book um, that I would actually like to recommend to anyone listening to this is called Parallax, The Race to Measure the Cosmos by uh, Alan Hirschfeld. Hirschfeld. It's a very good book, Um, and it talks all about parallax and the uh, historic race to try to figure out distances. Basically, parallax is if you hold your finger out at a distance, and you line it up with, say, a street light or a tree, and then you close one eye, and you keep one eye open, and then you close the eye that was open and open the other eye, and the tree will appear to move from your finger. Right. That's parallax, because... Each eye is at a different location, and you're viewing the tree relative to your finger at a very slightly different angle. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah.
0: Yeah. All right. So those so things that are further away, farther away. I'd be an English teacher. What uh, do do so now? Do they do they seem to move more or do they seem to move less?
1: They'll move less.
0: Right. Okay. So
1: you need to be able to measure very, very tiny angles if you want to be able to measure objects that are very far away. So, like, I'm standing here in my apartment and I line up my finger with a glass that's right in front of me, and I close one eye and then the other, and the glass appears to move quite a bit. But then I line up my finger with an object in another room, and I close one eye and then the other, and the object moves barely at all. Okay.
0: So some things are just so far away that they, they we can't measure the, 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 the difference in, in, in movement. Is, is that what?
1: And, par- and this particular star is sort of just around the limits of where parallax can be used. Okay. So uh, this star is sort of just at that distance where we really can't use parallax, and we have to rely on various other methods. And um, this is way far away from my area of expertise, so I'm not going to pretend that I actually fully understand these methods, but... Um, Basically, in the past, there have been at least four or five different methods used to estimate the distance of this star. And those measurements all came out to around 3.5 kiloparsecs away. Now, there have been you know, one or two that are obviously going to be smaller or larger than that, um, but the systematic error, the st- not the systematic error, but the, uh, the sort of general error uncertainty on this measurement has been around plus or minus one to one and a half kiloparsecs. So anywhere from about 2,000 parsecs to about um, 5,000 kilopar- 5, parsecs away for the distance of the star. And when it's that far away, if it were to go to a type 1a supernova, then Earth really wouldn't be in danger.
0: Okay. Um. From, like, ra- radiation, basically. Right. Like, so now, low-
1: astronauts would be. Um, astronauts, uh, I believe, at least according to Phil Plait's Death from the Skies book, which I quickly read that chapter on this <laughs> stuff today, um, according to that book, um, any supernova within, um, I think he said about 6,000 parsecs, um, and the astronauts are in trouble. Um, so astronauts will probably be dead. But, the issue now comes to this new model, which shows that the star is about 1,000 parsecs away, at least according to um, these three people who came up with this new or improved model. Um, so, just you know, a word there on models and predictions. Again, as I said, this star is you know it's very difficult to predict distances to any single star, especially when you don't have parallax. Um, You're relying on other methods. And um, this is one method, and, you know, you have to take that in context with the past 40 40 or 50 years of measuring distances to this particular star coming up with estimates that are about three times larger. So, you know, before people get really worried you have to remember that this has to be verified by other people. It has to actually go through the peer review process because as far as I could tell, this was just a presentation at the American astronomical society meeting or the aas meeting. And this has actually not been published yet. So it has not gone through peer review. Okay. So, but- you know, with all those caveats, if it's true that this, you know, do model does bear out, then earth could be in considerable danger. At least, um, our livelihoods could be in considerable danger if this star were to go supernova.
0: All right. And so, what, what, when will it go? How much time we got left?
1: Uh, the estimates that I saw were around 10 million years. But again, that all depends on how far away it is. Because these estimates are based on how fast material is being drawn from the other star onto this white dwarf star. And, you know, it that estimate depends upon how far away the star is (laughs) okay so um at least based on the press releases that i saw from this work if it's about 1000 parsecs away or about 3200 something light years away then we have about 10 million years probably until it goes supernova
0: okay could could it go like next month or 10 years from now
1: I don't think so, because um, what they also do is we also have fairly accurate measurements of its mass. And its mass is close to that Chandrasekhar limit, but we're about uh, four hundredths of a solar mass away. And that might seem tiny, but that's a lot of material. Um, Especially when it's only being drawn onto the star at a rate of about... 10 to the minus 8 solar masses per year, which is uh, about the closest estimate, or the best estimate that I could find for the moment. Okay. So, you know, if we have an estimated rate of, you know, mass accretion, and we know how big it is now, then we know how long it will take until it reaches that Chandrasekhar limit. And even if we're off by a few orders of magnitude, which is probably unlikely with how much material is accreting, or being drawn onto the star, then we're still, you know, many tens of, uh, or multiples of tens, uh, not multiples, sorry, delete that part, <laughs> exponents of ten years away. Okay. So
0: we still have time to develop warp drive, basically.
1: Right. Okay. We have, we have time to evacuate, we have time to put up an energy shield, and all that good stuff.
0: Well, that's true, I didn't think about that, yeah. Do you, do you ever sort of, uh, like, you know, people who don't maybe know a lot about, of astronomy, and, and you start to tell them about how, you know, the world will end, and uh, you know even the, the universe will end, like heat death or you know things like this. And, and people get like really, really depressed. You know, even though these things are like, I mean, billions of years away from happening. I, I've just found that people get like really, really depressed when you tell them that you know that it, it can, it will all end eventually. Have, have you found this?
1: Yeah, in fact, I get depressed too, which is why I don't study it. Oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah. But, uh, I mean you know what do you think about it like you know say um, say you were to for example turn into a vampire and you were to live forever um, you know in about a billion years or you know one to two billion year- years earth is going to heat up too much for any other life to exist so you know you'd kind of be a starving vampire for a few billion years, boiling away under an ever-increasingly bright sun, and then when it goes nova, you'll sort of be a vampire just sort of floating out in space, but eventually you'll get to the point where space is expanding so quickly that it's going to rip your molecules apart, and you'll sort of, you know, assuming that vampires really do live forever, you'd still be alive, and sort of but your molecules wouldn't be together anymore. <laughs> the, the you know, it's, big, it's kind of depressing.
0: What's the, the big rip concept. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The heat death. Wow. So yeah, I I just wonder. Must some strange, like in the back of all of our minds, do we think like you know what? Maybe, maybe in a couple decades they'll cure death, and you know, I'm 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 gonna make it. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna be around for that little immortality pill or something, and uh, and then it it suddenly makes us depressed that, geez, you know, even with immortality, we can't be immortal or something
1: yeah, it, which is why you always need that caveat yeah i can choose to die when i want i can <laughs> i can flip that switch i can you know if i took the immortality blue pill then eventually i could also take the death red pill
0: right yeah, So it's like it's like telling yourself i'm single by choice yeah <laughs> it, it just it gets you through the lonely nights really <laughs> wow all right so so Nothing to worry about, but of course I'm sure there's going to be some conspiracy down the road about all of this.
1: You know, believe it or not, I've actually really not heard much other than um, the the few news reports that covered this on the the, the day that the uh, that the guys were interviewed. Um, but otherwise, I've not heard that much. Now, granted, I am about a week and a half behind on my coast to coast AM listening. Uh, so, you know, they, they may have someone on there who, you know, Richard Hoagland, for example, who has said, "Oh yeah, it's going to be the end of the world, but I, I don't know. Um, and I have not really seen anyone else discussing this.
0: Okay. Yeah, you, you, uh, you, you follow that radio show a lot and then it generates a lot of ideas for your blog. Right. Right, yeah. So, uh. uh I know I've posted many links to your blog, but it's pseudo, pseudoastronomy.blogpost.com? Uh,
1: pseudoastro.wordpress.com.
0: Oh, okay, okay, pseudoastro.wordpress.com. All right, all right. So, uh, so Stuart, uh, I, I, I guess you know, for the benefit of our listeners who maybe have just started listening, uh, to just a review. You are, uh, you're still working on your your PhD in in astronomy. Yes. Okay. And uh, and you're at the University
1: University of Colorado at Boulder.
0: At Boulder, okay. And how how much longer do you have on that uh, that crazy little school thing?
1: Uh, well, in terms of being a graduate student or being in a school,
0: <laughs> like on, until they say, like, what are you doing here? Why, why are you still here? Like, why aren't you uh, well, getting a job?
1: Yeah, so I'm looking to graduate um, in or get my defend my doctoral or doctoral thesis. In May of 2011, so you know about another year and four to five months.
0: Okay, and uh, and uh, do you, you also you do political planetarium shows too, right? The
1: yeah, although you know they didn't email me um, about doing a show this spring. Um, okay. I was going to do one on 2012, um, oh. and he said he'd email me. But yeah, oh well.
0: Okay, and that's what is it—the shed shed planetarium or Fisk? Oh, right, sorry, the Fisk. Great, right? yes. Okay, no, Shed Aquarium. That's in Chicago. Okay, the Fisk, right, as in the, the Battlestar Galactica, uh, number one on the Pegasus, I think. Wow. Sure. Have you seen have you seen Avatar yet? No. no? Okay, I was just wondering if what you thought of you know the astronomy. Uh, I think yeah. All right, and uh, have you watched uh, the new Stargate Universe? No, serious, no. Okay, because that what seems to be like they try to, you know, they try to get the astronomy right at times. But I mean, that's just from a, you know, a lay person's perspective. Uh, all right. So you're you're just kind of busy with school and crap. You don't got time to just lollygag around, <laughs> watch TV like I do, right? Right.
1: right. At okay. least that's that's what I tell everyone.
0: Okay. Because when you graduate, you know, you finally get a job. It's great. You just come home after work and you eat potato chips, sit around in your underwear. It's it's a good life.
1: Well, that's assuming that, you know, it's a normal job. Uh, my my long-term plans are you know, to actually be faculty at a research university, and so I, I still won't have a life.
0: <laughs> all right. Well, it, it, yeah, and speaking about lives, I mean, you actually do a couple other interesting little things. You uh, you're, you're a chocolate maker.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, well, I don't actually make the chocolate, but I make stuff from chocolate. Yeah.
0: Okay, a chocolatier or something. Wow. Okay, and because uh, I remember you—you you were you're were sort of messaging me about like chocolate in America is too expensive. What about Canadian Canadian chocolate? <laughs> Canadian chocolates are somehow cheaper or something. I
1: right, think definitely. I was uh, trying to buy chocolate chips wholesale, and I was complaining that um, most of the chocolate that you get in America from people like uh, or companies like Nestle and Hershey's. Are really not very good, especially when compared with uh, a chocolate in, say, Europe or Italy, especially. Right. Um, and yes, I do know that Italy is part of Europe, so I shouldn't have said or Italy. Um, but th- there are some chocolate uh, chip makers in the US that are pretty good. Uh, Ghirardelli or Ghirardelli is one, and um, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Um, I pronounce it Guitard, Guittard, G U I T T A R D. So yeah, I was trying to find uh, wholesale stuff because if you just buy the little. 11.5-ounce bags at the grocery store. They're like 3 50 each, which is ridiculously expensive.
0: Okay. And you, you, did you make chocolate for Rich's, Rich Orman's Festivus? Did you go to Rich Orman's Festivus?
1: Uh, yes, I did. I made three types of fudge, uh, raspberry, mint, and a chocolate chunk. And I also made buckeyes, which are uh, sort of an Ohio thing, uh, because the buckeye tree is the state tree of Ohio, and it has a particular nut uh, that is called the Buckeye Nut, and the dessert is uh, you know, based on what that nut looks like. If you think of sort of a Reese's Peanut Butter Cup, yes. it's like a round Reese's Peanut Butter Cup. And I'm sure if your listeners go and do a Google image search and search for Buckeye's Dessert, you'll find many pictures of it.
0: Okay, and I guess I should mention R- Rich Orman is the host of Dog Buffery America, and uh, sort of, a uh, he lives close to you. He lives in the fine state of Colorado as well.
1: Yeah, he's about uh, 45 to 45. Fifty minutes away. Something okay.
0: Like that. Wow. Okay. And that's awesome. You got invited to his uh, his f- his festivus, his annual festivus party.
1: Yeah, I met his parents or uh, wow. his mom and I believe stepfather. All
0: right, is, yeah. oh, okay. All right. And uh, wh- wh- what was the feat of strength at his at his festivus?
1: Uh, there were a couple. There was one uh, holding uh, gallon jugs of water. Uh, there was another bending a steel rod. Uh, one of the the women. Uh, bent the rod before Rich even said start. <laughs> was <kind> of humorous. <laughs> uh, one was I think eating apple blintzes or something like that, but uh, or apple fritters. But I came in just as they were doing that, and I forget what the other one was.
0: Ah, uh, and uh, besides being a chocolatier, you're also you, you do photography, right?
1: Yeah. In fact, as soon as we're done here, I'm headed out to uh, the telescopes to do some more. Oh,
0: okay. <laughs> and you, do, you 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 shoot weddings as well?
1: I have done one wedding. Um, yes, uh, for some friends from college, and I will be doing, uh, I'll be shooting my advisor's wedding, uh, coming up in, uh, they haven't really set a date yet, so, uh, late summer of this year.
0: Oh, is that one of those things you kind of got to work for free, because he's, like, your, your, your advisor? You
1: know, after the wedding that I did in September for free, I, I told (laughs) him straight out, you know, I'm, I'm gonna be charging you, I'm sorry, you know, I'll give you some sort of discount or something for your, for your wedding gift, but, uh. (laughs) <laughs> it's, it was a lot of work. Like, oh, I know wedding okay. photographers seem like they're really expensive, like with packages starting at $1,000 or something. Yeah. But it's a heck of a lot of work.
0: Okay. And, and and the BBC, they took an interest in some of your photos, didn't they?
1: Uh, yeah. For some reason, uh about once a year, actually, yeah, once a year. Uh, Now for the last three years, every October – I don't know what it is about October – I've been contacted by some sort of ad or commercial-type agency wanting to use some of my lunar uh, or moon photographs. Um, In 2007, it was an ad company with Elizabeth Arden as a client. Um, I don't remember what the ad company was, um, but Elizabeth Arden, for the men out there, uh, is a uh, makeup company. Right, right. Now, I, had, I had never heard of them, but every woman that I happened to mention this to was like, oh, yeah, yeah, their stuff is really expensive. <laughs> um, and then the next year I was contacted by a sub-subcontractor from Microsoft to do some astrophotography consulting, and then this past year the BBC wanted me or wanted to use um, a series of photographs that I took where I basically went on a 25-hour day for two months to try to photograph the moon every night to get a, a full lunar month sequence. Okay. Um and they wanted to animate that to illustrate how the moon wobbles.
0: <laughs> did 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 they end up uh did they end up buying your photos or Uh yeah, they did. Awesome. Okay. All right. Not
1: for very much, I might add, but uh I I'm, I'm not going to say anything else. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, you know, it's important to uh, important to get your name out there, yeah,
1: and it's money I wouldn't have had otherwise. But you know, after the bank fees for going from Britain to the U.S. and blah blah blah, and the conversion factor, I was really hoping actually that the U.S. dollar was going to tank for like the one week period where uh, they were sending me the check, but that didn't happen. Uh,
0: all right, okay, and uh, well, I guess I should I should let you go, Stuart. It was it was nice to have you back on.
1: I thank you for having me.
0: Oh, can I? Can I? Can I? Can I plug myself?
1: I've already plugged myself, so go for it. Well, I
0: made you plug yourself. Uh, this, uh, yeah, oh, this podcast. Uh, well, we this podcast did not win a uh, podcast award, uh, but I did win. Uh, there's another podcast called Righteous Indignation, and uh, they're out of the UK. They're kind of the uh, the SGU of the UK. Uh, they all have wonderful, lovely British accents. Uh, I interviewed their. Uh, one of their hosts, Haley, about the Princess Di conspiracy, but uh, they 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 voted for my podcast for being the uh, best podcast of 2009. Uh, yeah, so I was Thanks. quite congratulations. Hard. Yeah, I know. I, I I don't think I deserved it at all. I feel really bad, and I was I was up against uh, uh, Brian Thompson's amateur scientist podcast, which is much funnier, and uh, and so yeah, I. I, I, I yeah, listen
1: to his uh, Indian astrologer interview.
0: I don't recall. I don't remember that one.
1: Yeah, um, it was from. It, I that, don't know when. Yeah, um, it's going back. Oh yeah the the nineteenth of January of two thousand nine. Beatrice Moreau, M A R O T. Her merit.
0: Oh right, the. Psychic she was, astrologer. Oh dear, yes, yes. Okay, no, I do remember that one. <laughs> That's a classic. Yeah. <laughs> oh. oh I didn't even mention um you are yeah y- you were trying to duplicate the uh what was it the uh some sort of world some weird no, world global consciousness yeah that's it the global yeah, con- that,
1: that's sort of on hold at the moment i the issue so the global consciousness project uh, very very quickly is this thing where they have um now about sixty uh, random number generators scattered throughout the world. And their premise is that human consciousness will change these random number generators. So uh, during major events around the world, and their biggest event, they claim that they quote-unquote retro- predicted, even though it's a retrodiction, was the uh, September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks. Right. And what they do is they do just a simple, or a very, not actually a simple, but a complicated statistical um, analysis of the data to see if the random numbers are different from what they should be based on pure probability
0: okay, so they're no longer random
1: right so okay. like for well what they do is they sample these random number generators um i think it's two times a second something like that all right um they they sample them um you know once or twice a second and it's going to either return a zero or a one. And then over the course of um, a certain amount of time. No, wait. What they did, I think it's they sample them at 100 times a second. Because it's over one second, they should average to. No, that's not right either. <laughs> <laughs> wait,
0: wait, wait, wait. Whatever,
1: whatever the sampling frequency is, over their certain time scale, it that should average to 100. Okay. Or because if you're a one or a zero and you sample it over the course of 200 samplings, then you should average to 100. And what they claim is that it deviates from that average, and that deviation is statistically significant. So what I've done so far is, I, you know, their data is freely available online. I downloaded some of it, including their September 11, 2001 stuff, and I looked at it, and I performed three different statistical tests on it. And from what I could see, it was incredibly uniformly random. Like, I did just a simple average and standard deviation over their time period, Um, and it was right at 100, and I was like, okay, maybe I'm doing this wrong. And then I tried to follow their numerical methods, their analysis, and I couldn't really follow it. And I don't know if that's just because um, I'm really bad at statistics or if – they're kind. Of, they don't explain it very well, or what? So I went to a friend of mine who I went to college with, but and he's also here at grad school with me. And he was much better in the math and statistics stuff than I was. And he looked at it, and he had no clue what they were doing either. So I'm kind of at the point where I really I just need to email them and be like, okay, could you possibly explain this to me? You know, from a numerical methods point, exactly what you did because the steps on your website are not very clear the steps in your papers are not very clear and i'd like to try to duplicate your results and so then the idea is is if i can you know duplicate their results is to you know sort of go through and try to duplicate the results for other events and do it randomly you know bl- double blind trial type thing and see what actually happens because this idea of global consciousness is just it's kind of you know weird and as a skeptic you, sh- you know the default position is that if you're claiming some psi effects that's PSY, I think, or PSI effects um, the default position is that you, know, you should be skeptical and look for the evidence and the evidence that they've presented their graphs look sort of impressive and I wanted to try to duplicate that and I figured that as a, an astronomer um, I should have the math background to be able to do that but um, so far it's kind of lacking and I'm trying to figure out if that's you know my ignorance or if it's just like okay they did something weird to their data to get what they got because it's it's not coming up with what they say it is
0: okay yeah so if the if the the global consciousness project if you eventually kind of come up with something about that you yeah let 's talk about that but i but i would imagine you'd probably uh Geez, they'd probably want you on skeptic's guide to the university skeptic's guide to the universe uh if you did something really kind of cool like that you know
1: yeah and uh, but i'm, but,
0: yeah, that but would I'm be just it. i'm just saying i 'm just saying i've got you know i 've invested in you okay so i get i get <laughs> i get right a first refusal on this all right that 's all i 'm saying
1: uh, so, so like, am I now? A, a, have I divided myself into stock? And you, you have a majority sh- uh, share or something?
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I thought, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, yeah. So, if that anything, if you start find something interesting about that. Definitely come back on. But you know, um, again, you know, I hope to have you back on again in future because these insane things will always pop up, and uh, yeah. So, you know, you always explain things really well. Well thank you. All right, thanks to and have uh you know have a good Sunday there.
1: Thanks you too. All right, bye-bye. Bye.